Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. On today's episode, we will discuss Chapter 36 of Order of the Phoenix. And we also have a new game to play. Guess that book! Just you wait, guys. (laughs) I imagine like a game show audience cheering like... This is what I envisioned for the game as it evolves over the next uh, few months. Nice. So stay tuned for that. But first, some news and muggle mail. The latest chapter readings are out. Downton Abbey's Hugh Bonneville read chapter 13 from Sorcerer's Stone. And the Malfoys read chapter 14. Tom Felton, Jason Isaacs, and Helen McCrory read chapter 14. What a sweet family bonding activity for the Malfoys. (laughs) That's very cute. And again, it'll make them more likable. Remember, was it the last episode where I joked that Amelda Staunton should join with Ray Fiennes and Tom Felton to do yeah. a chapter? And basically, it's the same thing. It's all the baddies together uh, <laughs> reading a chapter about Norbert. And there's only a couple chapters left, so we'll see who else they have in the pipeline. Also, we have some news ourselves. We want to let everybody know that our next Quizage Live will be happening July 21st. That is the anniversary of the publication of the final Harry Potter book, Deathly Hallows. And as you might imagine, Quizich Live will be themed around that book. So stay tuned for that. Again, that is July 21st. For anybody who doesn't know, this is a live real-time trivia game. You will be competing against fellow listeners for prizes. It's a lot of fun. We've really enjoyed doing these. It's free to play. It's open to everybody. So stay tuned. And that will probably be our last one for a while. So if you've been meaning to play Quizich Live with us, please tune in for that one. Also, we've been hosting some polls on our social media channels. A couple weeks ago, we had a debate over who was the worst villain. Was it Voldemort or Umbridge? Across the board on our social media channels, about 40% said Voldemort was the worst villain, and uh, 60% said it was Umbridge who was the worst. Hey, Laura, you and me for once. Yeah. That's there great. You go. Good job, you we two. Actually got to, we actually got to argue the side of a debate that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I kind of phoned in that debate. I just thought, like, yeah, this okay. is too easy. I don't have to try. And I didn't try hard enough. I apologize, Micah. I thought calling her a one-hit wonder was really going to deliver us the win, Andrew, but apparently not. (laughs) Who conducted this poll? (laughs) Well, the social media channels. No, I I would never. (laughs) I just want to make sure Pew Research was involved, and you know all the right parties were were calculating these votes. No, no mail in. Uh, We'll we'll check it out. (laughs) It was definitely not scientific, Micah. It was just a social media poll. Also on our social media channels, we asked, was the ministry built around the Department of Mysteries or was the Department of Mysteries added after the ministry was built? On Twitter, 57% said the Ministry of Magic came first. 43% said the Department of Mysteries did. And then on Instagram, 47% said the Ministry of Magic came first and 53% said Department of Mysteries came first. So it was, it was very split. The mystery continues. Instagram was right. Agreed. Okay. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> and and I I would I would clarify it a bit. I would say that it was built around the veil. Yes. Not specifically the Department of Mysteries. Right. Well, we will talk about that 
more in a second. But first, let's hear from one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode of MuggleCast is sponsored by an app that can greatly improve your life. It's Beachbody On Demand. They are the easy-to-use streaming service that gives you instant access to over 1,300 super effective workouts, and they're suited for anybody at any time. The secret to getting results is getting started. Once you try Beachbody On Demand, you're going to notice you're feeling better. You're going to feel more productive for having worked out, and you're going to have more energy during the day. Beachbody On Demand lets you achieve your goals from the comfort and safety of home, and it's much cheaper than a gym membership. Beachbody On Demand is the place to go for at-home workouts, and they are the best deal in fitness. This is the company behind all the routines like P90X, Insanity, 21 Day Fix. Now check out some of Beachbody's newest programs like Morning Meltdown, 80 Day Obsession, and start every day strong. 80 Day Obsession is one of my favorite programs. As you can tell from the name, it's a long-term program, and it works all areas of your body for a complete and very effective workout. Workouts are as short as 10 minutes, and they don't require extra equipment, so they're easy to fit into your life. There are programs that can work for any experience level, whether you're just getting started or you've been working out for a while. They have programs that can suit your needs. I really want you to try this app because I know firsthand these workouts work. Just start with smaller workouts if you don't already have a fitness routine, and I promise you're going to be feeling better right after your first workout. Right now, our listeners can get a special free trial membership when you text MuggleCast to 303030. So do it right now. You will get full access for free, all the workouts, the nutrition information, and support absolutely free. Again, just text MuggleCast to 303030. Okay, and let's get to Muggle Mail now. All right. This first one comes from Meg. Meg says, last episode, you wondered if the veil existed before the ministry or if it was built inside the ministry after the location had been chosen. I have a theory. Why do we have cities where they are? Because they're places close to water which is what people have always needed to survive. And for hundreds of thousands of years that humans have been living in groups, it's been natural to congregate near water and make that your living space. We know the statute of secrecy went into action in 1692. So for conceivably all of humanity before then, muggles and wizards were living together. There are wonders such as Stonehenge that people believe have some magic to them, and I think the veil might have been something like this. Unlike Stonehenge, though, I don't think the veil was created by people. In fact, maybe it wasn't always a veil. We can see it's a strange, voidy thing. Maybe very early wizards actually put the arch and veil over it as a marker after the 20th person fell through the void on their way back from gathering roots. (laughs) (laughs) Groups grew over time until we had our first cities. Perhaps wizards chose to stay in London, still conveniently located near water, and have the option to study the void beyond the veil. When the first wizards in 700 BCE or whatever decided there needed to be a sort of headquarters for magical folk, they made a structure around the veil, the first room of what would become the Department of Mysteries. Years went by, London expanded, the headquarters grew, and then when the Ministry of Magic was formed in 1707, this place of magic was the logical choice for its location. By the 20th century, it's a bustling center of magical activity with the veil still standing and still being studied by the most daring and inquisitive wizards. I love this. (laughs) I think it's a good theory. I I still just have a hard time wrapping my head around them 
forming the entire Ministry of Magic around the veil. Yeah. But it's a cool theory. You got to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think what I like about Meg's theory is that they didn't purposely say, well, the veil's here, so I guess we have to build the ministry here. It just sort of grew over time and became the logical place for the ministry because it's in the capital city of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's cool for sure. Which, yeah. Yeah. It's very well written, very well thought through. Andrew, think Sims. Think Animal Crossing. That That's the vibe I'm getting here. You have to build around <laughs> something. <laughs> huh. Okay. No, I, not, that not makes no sense. <laughs> That's a terrible connection. Then you could You're have, just saying games I like well, to play. They, you could have Timmy and Tommy like, don't go through the veil, veil. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that uh, they would have built it room by room. I mean, maybe if they had to protect the veil, um, they would have put protections around it. And then they're like, well, we already have this room that's unseeable by muggles. We should just build on that. And then that helped them like mm-hmm. protect their stuff but i love the idea that the veil itself was just a hole through like space time and people just kept dying through it so they're like we should throw a veil over this yeah pretty cool and a related tweet this is from seabird i don't think the arch was just in a cave or in the middle of a forest or something i think it was maybe imported from somewhere to be studied and let's be honest brits aren't new to taking over people's arts and schlepping it to london <laughs> Ooh. fair Ouch. point fair point i don't <laughs> salty I don't think- seabird I don't think colonialism stops with wizards. Yeah. So So the veil was from another part of the world and it was taken, quote unquote, to London. Allegedly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, The next muggle mail comes from Becky, who says, I have three unrelated questions. Going back to episode 470, you mentioned the creature interpreted Sirius saying out as him being let go, and he decided that Bellatrix was his new master. If Sirius wasn't Creature's master when he went through the veil, then why did Harry become his master after that? Was it just because of Sirius's will? My fast fire answer is it was only a loophole that let Creature go to Bellatrix and do her bidding. So once it was formalized in Sirius's will, Creature's like control of Creature went strictly back to Harry because it was only not Sirius's under certain conditions. Agreed. It was just like it. how Creature interpreted those words. Right, right yes. Didn't he have to punish himself a bit? I mean, puni- maybe, punishment maybe for him is just seeing mudbloods in front of him. So if he goes back to Harry, he's punishing himself. Fair enough. In regards to your chapter 35 discussion in episode 472, I was wondering why Dumbledore, aka Dumbledore, didn't just <laughs> destroy the Ministry's copy of the prophecy as soon as Voldemort returned, since he already had his own record of it. The only person who needed to know about it was Harry, so as long as he kept the memory for Harry to see and showed it to him sooner, everything would have been fine. Because then we wouldn't have a fifth bug. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you got to follow the rules. Dumbledore was just following the rules. It Mm. it does raise the question as to how, like, whether they're luring Voldemort to the Department of Mysteries in some way. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. You would think that would tempt him. Yeah, they knew he was going after it from the beginning of the book. So why are they stationing people outside of like the room and putting people at great risk if not to lure Voldemort out? Like, was this that we could talk about this in the chapter today? Was this Dumbledore's plan all along? Right. Well, I also just mean since the prophecy is in the in the Ministry of Magic, it has to cross their minds, everybody's minds that if Voldemort ever did come back, 
he might try to go for that prophecy. Yeah. So why tempt him with the existence of it there? Right. Yeah. Why tempt anybody, really? <laughs> well, and in order for Dumbledore to retrieve it, he would need to have Harry with him, right? He can't just go in and get it himself and destroy it. Right. True. Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, Harry would have been up for a little trip with Dumbledore since Dumbledore has been ignoring him this whole book. <laughs> so Harry would have been down. What is this orb, sir? Oh, nothing, nothing. Please just grab it <laughs> and smash it. I just want to see if you can throw a baseball, Harry. <laughs> I'm your dad. <laughs> I'm your dad. So you never had a father who could toss the ball with you. Whoa. Final question from Becky. Do you guys think it was maybe some sloppy writing from Joe to introduce the Department of Mysteries so quickly at the end of Order of the Phoenix and then never return to them? Almost yes. like she had this well-informed idea that she couldn't bear to part with, so she just shoved it into a book that was already too long. I think, Laura, you kind of touched on this a bit in the last episode. Yeah, especially doing this chapter by chapter of this book at this point in my life, I realize that in my opinion, and I'm not place, like passing any judgment on anyone who disagrees with me, but I feel that this is the weak point of the series. Not to say it's a bad book. It's not. There's a lot of really good stuff in this book. But in terms of the plot and the arc, as we've identified recently, there, there are some plot holy items. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. It still gives me a deeper appreciation for the art to realize it can be flawed. So don't like, please don't email me. Don't at me. Like, I don't, I don't hate Order of the Phoenix. I just think it's not the strongest book in the series. I think it's harsh to suggest it's sloppy writing. I think that the Department of Mysteries, it's four or five chapters after all. It's like 65 pages of a really cool setting. And location. I mean, this is one of the cooler settings and locations we get that aren't Hogwarts in the books. So I, I don't know. I, I think that it serves its point. This was something J.K. Rowling always had to put in one of the books, but I, I don't think it feels shoehorned in. It explains that there's things we don't understand about the Wizarding World. And just because we don't understand them, I'm not going to criticize them going, that should have been explained more. I feel like this mm -hmm. is just the place where those things are solved, and it's not within the scope of the series to answer those types of questions. The only other mm -hmm. thing I'll add is that I feel like J.K. Rowling had greater plans for the Department of Mysteries, and she wanted to share this info at some point, and then it just never got out, unfortunately. Yeah. But I mean, imagine the That's book right. series without the Department of Mysteries existing at all. We would, right. it would be full of more plot holes because we'd be like, well, wait, what are the rules of this? What are the rules of this? And at least we know now. I'm glad we got what we did. And uh, just to wrap up, Eric, Becky said she really enjoyed your Sears and Spheres <laughs> renaming of the chapter from last week. Aw, thank you, Becky. So you have a, you have a fan. Yeah. That's, I wish I wasn't <laughs> just so critical just then. Um, hey, <laughs> thanks. She's reneging. Next week, you're going to get an email uh, saying she no longer likes it. <laughs> this next piece of email comes from Jennifer, longtime listener, first time writing in. Thank you, Jennifer. I was listening to episode 472 and started lamenting the fact that we never really get to see Remus grieve for Sirius, the last of his best friends to die. They were so close and having to lose him all over again. First to Azkaban, and then the Vale, would have been a tremendous blow. 
I too admire mm. his emotional strength when he tells Harry that Sirius is gone. It's as if he's almost having to say that to himself as well. I was wondering if it would have been good for Harry and Remus to talk about Sirius's death and share in that grief together. Remus is woefully underutilized in the later books, and it is also noted that, quote, Harry did not like talking about Sirius if he could avoid it. Book 6, Chapter 8. I know it is Luna that Harry talks to in the final chapter about Book 5, of Book 5, about death, which is one of my favorite scenes, but it would have been nice to see Remus and Harry have a heart-to-heart like the one they had done at the end of Book 3. Maybe Lupin knew that Harry wouldn't want to talk about Sirius and just let him be and put his own feelings aside. Maybe Lupin was already struggling with his feelings for Tonks and had a lot of his own emotional baggage to sort out. Whatever the reason, I feel like it was a lost opportunity for these two to grieve over someone who meant a great deal to them both and lean on each other for support. I would love to hear everyone's thoughts on this. It's a great point, and that's just war, man. <laughs> you lose people, you don't have time to grieve. I mean, why doesn't Sirius get a funeral? Because the book was long enough. <laughs> I don't know. Well, well maybe, maybe. I mean, he's a convicted criminal in, in the eyes mm. of wizarding law. Yeah. But the like the people the people of the order could have had a private little gathering of Ceremony. some sort. Yeah. yeah. Maybe Maybe they did. It was just off screen. This might sound bad, but maybe J.K. Rowling didn't want to write a funeral because we would have a funeral for Dumbledore in the next book. Didn't, similar no. to how they didn't have a funeral, they didn't have a battle at the end of Hapler Prince because they knew they would have another battle at the end of uh, movie eight. Do you guys remember that? They said we didn't have the big battle at the end of movie six because we knew we would have another one the next movie. Yeah, it's kind of repetitive if you do it like back to back to back. It um, seems silly, though, because you need that climax. Well, not don't forget, you also had Aragog's funeral in Half Blood Prince. So, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and right, Dumbledore. Two funerals. Yeah, yeah so. just in the book, she doubled down. I mean, mm-hmm. it would be more of a memorial for Sirius, right? And I, I, I don't. I think the Order would have properly acknowledged him and and remembered him. I would hope, and he is vindicated by the end of this book, isn't he? So uh, it's not like he's still a criminal. I, yeah, I think Fudge. Yeah mention something to the other minister in the beginning of the next book but they don't go out of their way i mean fudge has already fallen so far from grace by that point yeah mm-hmm. yeah but I, I agree with jennifer the that remus is underutilized a hundred percent um remus does not then take up this father figure asks thing that to be honest he always dominated more than serious he was always mm-hmm. a better parental figure for her he just doesn't yeah. step up and Rowling does yeah, not it- write him stepping up here no, and and she really doesn't for most of Deathly Hallows too. Harry and Lupin have a really bad relationship, honestly, towards the end, and, and it's kind of sad, honestly, given what happens at the end of the book. All right, this last piece of feedback comes from Veronica. Veronica says, "I had a thought about a recent episode that I wanted to share, and wondered what y'all think." In the episode for chapter 33, there was some discussion about how Harry would have chosen or how Harry wouldn't have chosen Ginny, Luna or Neville from the from Dumbledore's army to accompany the trio to the ministry. The general thought seems to be that Harry wouldn't choose them because they aren't skilled enough in defense against the dark arts. However, I have a challenge to that idea. I think that Harry doesn't want them to go because of the affection he feels for them. 
Jenny is like a sister to him at this point. He knows Neville's history and has watched him blossom in defense against the dark arts. And Luna and all of her quirks have grown on him all year long. They also just pulled off an amazing escape from Malfoy and his cronies using their newly sharpened Defense Against the Dark Arts skills. Ginny, at least, has an idea about what could be in store for them at the Ministry, and Neville is not naive about what Death Eaters are capable of. Harry may feel that Luna is a bit naive, but somehow I don't think she is. Quirky, yes. Naive, no. Ultimately, I think that Harry's blossoming love for them and a desire to keep them safe is why he doesn't want them to go. Just wanted to share and hear your thoughts. Mm. I'm sure that is a factor as well. It's that, but it's also traveling with a big group. Yeah. Yeah. And Harry's all that get in sneakily, bigger group attracts more people kind of guy. Yeah. But the way it is worded in the book is I would not have chosen these three. And it just seems like he's... Right. Uh, it, you know. The wording is what caused us to react the way that we did. It, it's J.K. Rowling's writing specifically that calls attention to the fact that for whatever reason, he didn't want to have these three with them or with him. Mm-hmm. And I think the reasoning, at least the way it came across, was because they're not as skilled as he would hope for. Yeah. But I like that anyone can take it and go, oh, but what about this? So, yeah, for sure. No theory is safe. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for your feedback. We love hearing from everybody. So keep that feedback coming. Now we're going to try a new game. So once we're finished with chapter by chapter for Order of the Phoenix in a few weeks, we'll be moving into a variety of different main discussions that discuss everything in the books and movies. And we're so excited to get started with that. And we'll have more details in the weeks ahead. And in addition to unique main discussions week to week, we will also introduce some new segments. And today we're going to try one. Guess that book. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Guess That Book. I'm your host, Andrew, and today we're joined by three contestants who claim to be diehard Harry Potter fans. But are they? We're about to find out. The rules are simple. I will play a clip from one of the seven Harry Potter audiobooks, and Laura, Micah, and Eric will have 10 seconds to guess what book it's from. For a bonus point, contestants, you may guess the chapter as well. So are you ready to play Guess That Book? Yeah! Yeah! So here is your first clip. He ran back down to the common room. We'd better put the cloak on here and make sure it covers all three of us. If Filch spots one of our feet wandering along on its own. What are you doing? Said a voice from the corner of the room. All right, you have 10 seconds. Sorcerer's Stone. Yep. Micah, what is your answer? Sorcerer's Stone. Wow, you guys are really good. That's correct. It's. Oh, oh, extra point, extra point. Go okay. ahead. Is it through the trapdoor? That's correct. Wow. <laughs> okay, that one was purposely a little easy. Here is the next question. Eight of the hands were currently pointing to the home position, but Mr. Weasley's, which was the longest, was still pointing to work. Mrs. Weasley sighed. Your father hasn't had to go into the office on weekends since the days of you-know-who she said. They're working him far too hard. His dinner's going to be ruined if he doesn't come home soon. 
Guess that book. I'm going to guess, although it might be wrong, Chamber of Secrets, Chapter of the Burrow. Mm. Goblet of Fire? Micah? Chamber of Secrets. Well, Micah and Eric got it wrong. It was Goblet of Fire. Nice. Good job, Laura. Yeah, that was, as you may be able to tell now, it's from the chapter Mayhem at the Ministry. Sorry, I should have asked Laura to guess that chapter as well. I I am not going to be able to identify the chapters. I'm just telling you already. (laughs) It's not going to happen. Well, you might be able to for this next question. And we must unite inside her or we'll crumble from within. I have told you. I have warned you. Let the sorting now... Begin. Guess that book. Order of the Phoenix? Yep, Order of the Phoenix. The Sorting Hat's oh. new song. New song. Micah? Yeah, I'm going to go with the other two here. Well, all three of you are correct. Woo! Okay, now I had this tiebreaker question, though we weren't competing against one another. Again, we're testing out this segment. <laughs> here is the tiebreaker. Let's see if any of you can get it. I'll give you one clue. It's from one of the four books... That weren't an answer today. But the source of the noise proved to be nothing more than a pure white peacock strutting majestically along the top of the hedge. Guess that book. Deathly Deathly Hallows. What? I thought that was going to be harder. Uh, I know. Is it Malfoy Manor? Is that a chapter? Uh, It was the first chapter where they're on the way to Malfoy Manor. I didn't that, think that was specific enough. Good job. Is that the Dark Lord Ascending? Is that the name of the chapter? Oh. Yes. Nice. Micah gets the extra point. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for playing Guess That Book. All right. <laughs> Come on, Mega Man. Just one more jump. <laughs> All right. So what we learned today is these need to be a little bit more difficult because you guys did really well. Well, there were there were little clues in there, I think, that, that helped. Like the white peacock, I think, was a giveaway for Malfoy Manor. Right. I didn't realize that was going to be a giveaway. Okay. But you also can't go too obscure because then right. no, nobody's going to get the answer. Well, like for the very first clip where they're going down to the common room and say, we better get the cloak, that could be any book. But it was given away when, when Neville said, what are you guys doing? Exactly. Though I didn't include the part where Jim Dale says Neville because I thought that would make it a little trickier. No, yeah, that understood. Well, was that a good segment? Yes. Should we continue? I liked yeah, it. Okay. That, that was, was super great. That's We're interactive. Have to brush up on our skills, though. I'm sure uh, Scholastic will sue us in a few months if we keep that segment up. So let's do it while we can. That's fine. Okay, if you're not as efficient as Molly Weasley is at managing your own burrow, then our next sponsor is for you. This week's episode of MuggleCast is sponsored by HelloFresh, who will deliver you fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes right to your door. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking fun, easy, and affordable. HelloFresh offers so many recipes to choose from each week to help you break out of your recipe rut. There's something for everyone, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly recipes every week. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes, or even 20 minutes with their quick recipe options. Plus, HelloFresh can help you live sustainably. HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients mean there's less prep for you, less wasted money, and less food waste. 
I am such a big fan of HelloFresh because it gives me an opportunity to shake up my dinners. It's fun and exciting to make something new that you know is going to be good. I am in no way a good chef. So having someone plan out my meals is perfect. It's a great replacement for your same old routine and or going out to eat. And finally, and I love when our sponsors do this, HelloFresh is giving back. HelloFresh donated over 2.5 million meals to charity in 2019, and this year they're stepping up their food donations amid the coronavirus crisis. If you want great tasting and easy to make food sent right to your door, and if you want to support a good company who helps others, go to HelloFresh.com slash Muggle80 and use code Muggle80 to get a total of $80 off, including free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Please visit HelloFresh.com for more details. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash Muggle80 and use code Muggle80 to get a total of $80 off, including free shipping on your first box. Use the link and see the upcoming meal calendar. Your mouth is going to start watering and then you will be ordering because this stuff is so good. Okay, it's time for chapter by chapter. Chapter 36 of Order of the Phoenix, the only one he ever feared is what we're discussing this week. And we'll start with our seven word summary. Voldemort is trying to kill Harry Potter. Hey. <laughs> uh, this this is not a good one. That's the one. This is the theme of the entire series. Yeah, but it's I know. this chapter in particular. So oh, far. Boy. Well, I think it's the it's actually the first time he shoots a killing curse directly at him since yeah! uh ba- way back in well before Sorcerer's Stone. That's right. Okay. Uh so as Andrew mentioned, chapter 36, the only one he ever feared. And the chapter starts out with the reaction to Sirius having just gone through the veil, and Harry is in a moment of denial. And I think that's totally normal, given what has happened. He doesn't believe that Sirius is truly gone until he realizes that Sirius has never kept him waiting. And this was a a tearjerker moment, I think. Yeah, well, when something so shocking like this happens, when you don't even understand what the veil is, you can see why Harry is in denial. Oh, absolutely. And then he starts to see reason pretty quickly, actually. Totally. And yeah. and I think it's it's normal for mm-hmm. anybody who's experienced this type of loss to think the way that Harry's thinking, that no, there's no way that he's truly gone. He's he's just gonna come around the corner or he's on he's on the other side of that veil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yeah, it's it's a really sad moment in the series and and Neville comes through I thought again as as a true friend uh, he asks a question about Sirius and the first thing that he says though is that he's sorry and mm. the two of them interacting Neville being supportive of Harry in this moment it's really the only support that he gets outside of Lupin but Lupin is more physical support here I think Neville is is the emotional support at least for a very quick moment and I yeah. love mm-hmm. how Neville is so ready to accept that Sirius was Harry's friend. Like, mind you, Sirius has spent the last three books being on the cover of the Daily Prophet and, you know, painted as a criminal. And in this moment, Neville's just like, oh, was he your friend? I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, 
And that just shows his inner Gryffindor. This was also a tearjerker moment, though, just reading this line from Neville. Harry, I'm really sorry. Was that man, was Sirius Black a a friend of yours? Uh... (laughs) I know it really speaks to the lack that Harry, Harry was never able to parade around his godfather and take him to to family gatherings Mm. and parties and say, yeah, this is my new like father figure. This is my godfather here. He was never able to do that. Neville doesn't even know him. And I, 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 I switch between, on the one hand, mentioning or acknowledging what Laura said, like Neville's internal character growth to say that this purported felon, like, could have been a friend, obviously, because Harry's there crying and wanting to slap Neville because J.K. Rowling is still writing him in the, the, whatever that, that speech term because he's like bleeding profusely from the nose. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, man, but Harry must be feeling devastated that he never was able to even explain the context because the odds were stacked against Sirius since day one of his escape. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was that the man that stole the password list from me back in year three? (laughs) (laughs) That bastard. I'm glad he's gone. Broke into Gryffindor Tower and scared the crap out of all of us. How could he be a friend of yours? Yeah, so just a really uh, tender moment there between Harry and Neville, but it is short-lived because Harry then begins to chase after the one responsible for Sirius's death, and that is Bellatrix Lestrange. And uh, they they make their way out into the atrium of the ministry. Nobody thinks to follow suit, right? I understand there's still a little bit of a battle happening, but Dumbledore seems to wrap things up pretty quickly. Right. And uh, Harry gives chase to Bellatrix, and he's so furious that he attempts to use the Cruciatus Curse on her. And uh, then he gets a little bit of a lesson from Bellatrix about the unforgivable curses. And she tells him flat out he has to mean it because it has yeah. very little effect on her outside. I think maybe of just knock her over. It, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. It knocks her on her ass. The effects which, don't last long. That's the key difference here. Right. Mm-hmm. It shocks her enough that she's no longer laughing and no longer talking like a baby at him. Thank but God. it's only temporary. Right. So, so th- I, this is interesting, though. Yeah. Did Harry not mean it? I mean, Bellatrix tries to explain it, how it works, which is actually kind of nice of her. <laughs> she and uh, Lucius are very helpful. Well, what, what is it they say? Fa- fa- failure is the great teacher. Uh, yeah. Okay, there you mm-hmm. go. Yeah. And I mean, Bellatrix says you need to really want to cause pain to enjoy it. Righteous anger isn't enough. Oh, you're right. That's pretty much the whole recipe right there. Yeah. <laughs> man, was... her and Lucius, man. I had a question for the panel. Um, Do we think that somebody needs to be broken to be capable of successfully performing an unforgivable curse? And the reason I think of this is because the only people we've seen perform them, to my knowledge, are Voldemort, Bellatrix, Barty Crouch Jr., and Snape, who've all Mm -hmm. killed people. I think Harry could do it if he worked at it. I'm more inclined to side with Laura. I think you need to be broken or you just need to be plain old evil. And Harry does not have that within him. I mean, he's lost so much, though. I I think he could begin to cross the threshold if not, you know, if if nobody's looking at his mental health, I think Harry could very well, like, 
because he's been Voldemort. He's seen Voldemort when Voldemort's torturing and using the Cruciatus curse. I think Harry would actually be able to quickly get to the place where he needed to be to be able to do it because he's seen it done from the first person before. He's just never done it. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's possible that you could be right later in the series, but in this moment, I don't think Harry's broken enough to be able to do this. (laughs) But doesn't he use the Imperius curse in Gringotts? Yeah. Yeah, he does. So he is capable to some, but I always think of the Imperius curse as like more skillful and less unforgivable. Uh, Mm. Not that we need to analyze the unforgivable curses, but the other two are very much extreme in terms of harm and pain and death in one case. Yeah, but you are taking over somebody's entire will, like something that they rarely are separated from in their Mm. entire lives. I feel like it's just a different kind of magic, but we always see Harry's adept at fighting off the Imperius curse. So maybe that helps him two years from now when he needs to use it. He still does struggle though in Deathly Hallows with the Cruciatus curse because he uses it on, I want to say it's Amicus Caro for spitting in McGonagall's face Uh and he only gets thrown. He doesn't, there's no like effect like what we see with Neville in this chapter. So yeah, I'm not sure. Is, Is it a factor of intent? Could it be age? Could it be magical ability? It may be a combination of all those things. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't age is an interesting question because I guess the older you get, probably the more broken you <laughs> likely are. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I think it would take a lot of strength to be able to pull this off. And if you're a younger kid, you just might not have the focus to be able to pull this off yet. I'm not saying I think I think Harry is old enough and experienced enough at this point to successfully cast this curse, but most kids probably aren't, and certainly younger kids are not. Well, for comparison's sake, I think Tom Riddle would have been able to do this at Harry's age because he already enjoyed torturing people. Well, I was yeah, thinking- and he was beyond broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking of those children that he took to the cave, and we don't know exactly what he showed them or did to them. It might have been something along the lines of a Cruciatus curse. Mm-hmm. But that would be yeah. rid- he would be ridiculously young. At that age, because that right. was like before 11. I think there there has to be also just an understanding of what you're doing to the person. And and I don't know, I'm sure by 15, you, you have a sense, but I think there has to be, to Bellatrix's point, this, you want to inflict pain upon the other person, which I think Harry obviously does in this moment because of what she's done to Sirius. But I don't know if he would enjoy that. Like as much as he wants to do it to Bellatrix, I don't think like what's the satisfaction level that he's going to get out of that. Right. Well, revenge. Revenge is important to him in this moment. Mm. It it might be his wand rejected too. I mean, he has two things working against him, his purity of heart and the fact that there's Phoenix Feather in his wand. And it might be that Phoenix Feather wands can't cast those types of curses. Nicole, who's listening live right now, she says, for Harry, I feel like it's when you were a kid and said you hated someone, but rarely actually meant it. I think that's a good observation. Yeah. And and I don't think Harry, the other piece for him in this moment, I don't think he's truly focused. I think he's just reacting to what's happening. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference. and, And that could be part of his age and just not knowing kind of how to compartmentalize. The other thing that comes up, though, in this exchange between Harry and Bellatrix is uh, the fact that 
by the way, I broke the prophecy. Sorry, guys. <laughs> and you're, she doesn't believe him. Well, well, right. what? She's like, yeah. After they get through the whole Cruciatus uh, curse lesson, mm-hmm. uh, he drops the little piece of information that, you know, the prophecy, it's uh, it's gone. Sorry. You're screwed. <laughs> Death Eaters, screwed. Voldemort, not going to be happy. <laughs> I love how he's trolling her in this sequence. Like at one point, he's hiding behind the fountain and he holds up his empty hand and wiggles his fingers like, look, look, it's not here. <laughs> but this is where Bellatrix's demeanor completely changes though you can actually sense the fear that's coming from her once she does start to realize that the prophecy has in fact been destroyed and it's not something we often see from death eaters but she's definitely afraid yeah and she starts wailing and you know shouting her apologies to the dark lord and to harry he's like why are you shouting at him he's not here Until Voldemort's like, excuse me, I am. (laughs) And in this moment, I just wanted to call out the fact that Voldemort calls her Bella. We have this to thank for every fan fiction referring to her this way. (laughs) Every fan fiction tried to call her Bella to soften her in a way. So just, you know. Is Voldemort using it as a term of affection? So that's what I'm wondering. Knowing what we know now. Yeah. do we think their love affair has already started based on these interactions? I mean... I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. You know what Bellatrix says to Harry during this chapter? is She says that she learned the dark arts from Voldemort. That Voldemort has taught her crazy things. And I'm thinking that's a lot of one-on-one class time, if true. Mm-hmm. So, Especially yeah. now that she's been to the love room. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she but. says, I, I was and am the Dark Lord's most loyal servant. I learned the dark arts from him. And I know spells of such power that you, pathetic little boy, can never hope to compete. So, like, it's great that he is able to get away and all that. But Bellatrix is terrifying. And I think, yeah, the connection, there's a lot more to their relationship that we don't even know about, even in Cursed Child. I'm trying to think of other characters that may have referred to her that way do we ever hear narcissa call her bella yes i think so I yeah, think, yeah. yeah. It, it's but sissy seen... and bella i feel like yeah. she's the only other person though i want to say snape it may just be a movieism, but i think snape when they're in spinner's end says to her we shouldn't touch things that aren't ours bella <laughs> As only Alan Rickman can. Right. Mm -hmm. But see, that comes across kind of mocking. Like, Mm. yeah, I know that you're Voldemort's boothang. (laughs) Well, there's the social media post for the week. Yeah. So we'll get to Voldemort's arrival in just a minute. But one other thing that Bellatrix does before uh, she actually gets pinned down by the witch statue. I was going to say before she escapes, but that's in the movie. (laughs) Uh, She refers to Sirius as the Animagus Black. And I just wondered, was this a distancing measure on her part so that when she's talking with Voldemort, there's no direct affiliation that Mm. she has with, you know, they're related, they're cousins, they're blood. But in this moment, she wants no attachment. She's she's referring to him as if he's a dog, literally. Right. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an insult on purpose. 
Yeah, there's also that mental detachment of, I did not just kill my cousin, I killed the Animagus Black. Yeah, right, right. There's no emotional connection there. Exactly. Um, But, I mean, just as an indicator of how close they really are, it was its creature's whole ownership issue. Like, Like, Sirius and Bellatrix are closely related enough that creature goes to... We we already rehashed this, but you know what I'm saying. So they're a lot closer than her statement would seem to acknowledge. Like she just committed almost fratricide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she kills a, a family member. And I, I think it's also just evidence of probably how Death Eaters and Voldemort talk about those that aren't in their inner circle. They probably find ways to degrade them or talk to them or, other or talk about them. And Yeah, exactly. Okay, so Voldemort has arrived at the Ministry finally, but he's not the only one in the atrium. We know Harry's there. We know Bellatrix is there. He has a little bit of a dialogue. He shoots the killing curse at him because he just had enough. He doesn't want to deal with Harry anymore. Harry's not worth his time. <laughs> Be gone! Yeah, exactly. He casts a Vada Kedavra, and all of a sudden, one of the statues jumps out in front of Harry and takes the killing curse straight in its chest. And nice. Voldemort is like Dumbledore. <laughs> <laughs> he just knows. He knows. Word it again. Uh, yeah. And it's probably worth mentioning. I think Bellatrix also lets Voldemort know by just saying he's below. Like she's trying to warn him that Dumbledore yeah. is here, but Voldemort doesn't really catch what uh, she's throwing out there. Mm-hmm. But we we decided that this is too epic of a moment to leave to the films, and uh, <laughs> we we asked on on Twitter with both Voldemort and Dumbledore kind of making their entrance to the atrium of the Ministry. What would be their theme song? You know, think about their they're they're stepping down to the ring. They're about to get in and right. and you know Walking go twelve in. rounds with each other. Yeah. What's their entrance music? Yep. What do we hear in our version <laughs> of the movie? And let's hear. This suggestion from Issy, this is Voldemort's entrance music. Please welcome to the stage, Lord Voldemort! So that is Cold Hearted by Paula Abdul. Thank you, Issy. And now Dumbledore is coming out through the curtain. And here is his entrance song as suggested by Laura the Kiwi 7. Please welcome to the stage, Albus Dumbledore. I think these were excellent suggestions. Thank you, Laura and Issy. They're perfect. <laughs> I'm just imagining Voldemort and Dumbledore coming out for like a lip syncing battle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting you say that because the photo we posted with this on Twitter is actually like Ray Fiennes and Michael Gambon just sitting on the the atrium statue pool, just kind of like in casual conversation. So I'm. I wouldn't be surprised if those two actually would engage in like a karaoke battle. Yeah, absolutely. 
Andrew, I, I don't know if you want to do your best Dumbledore impression, but the line that Dumbledore delivers. It was foolish of you to come here tonight, Tom. Thank you, Dumbledore. You're welcome. But uh, Voldemort is just stunned that Dumbledore is not trying to kill him. And Dumbledore responds by saying that there are things that are worse than death. Yes, yes, that's because we both know there are other ways of destroying a man. Mm -hmm. and what does he so mean? I was wondering, is, yeah, is this a hint maybe uh, at Dumbledore's own personal situation? Or do you think it's directly applied to Voldemort? I think this I think this is the setup for the eventual payoff of the creature under the bench in King's Cross. Um that that is a fate worse than death. It's a part of Voldemort's soul that is alone in the world and doesn't really know anything about who it is or where it is or anything. Hmm. Um like that's the fate worse than death. Mm. Yeah, that's I think, interesting. I think this is multifaceted. I think it can refer to Dumbledore's own experience. I think it can refer to the reality that he knows about Voldemort's soul situation. And also, I think this could be a subtle way of teasing that he knows about the Horcruxes, or he at least suspects them. Because we know, you know, yeah. as we read in Half-Blood Prince, that Tom Riddle is informed that ripping his soul up is not a good thing. It's an act against nature. And Dumbledore, back to book one, is the guy who said to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. Um, so, of course, Dumbledore would take this position in this moment by saying, eh, there's things worse than death, like taxes, for instance. Dumbledore is not afraid to die. No, but I, I think for for him, it he could be alluding to what we learn more about in Deathly Hallows, and his own personal struggle after the death of his sister, his torn relationship with his brother, I think living the life that he's lived, there's a lot of regret. And, yeah. and that doesn't even take into account everything with Grindelwald, which we're going to learn more about in the Fantastic Beasts series. So I think that that's probably a bit of what's going on here, but also to the points raised about the Horcruxes you know, Voldemort at this point is is way less than human. And I, I think he realizes that he can't kill Voldemort in this moment because mm -hmm. it, it it doesn't achieve the ultimate end, right? It, mm -hmm. If he kills him, then Voldemort's soul is going to find a way to latch itself on to something else right. because the Horcruxes exist. He can't be killed. So yeah. I don't even know how you would be able to contain Voldemort. I'm also in, wondering in if Dumbledore doesn't want to kill Voldemort because he needs Fudge to see him alive. He needs to prove that he did come back. If he killed Voldemort in this moment, he would disintegrate and float into the air and then there would be no proof. Right. Yes. I'm, I'm actually glad you mentioned that because right as the battle starts, he sends two of the members of this magical fountain <laughs> off to get presumably Fudge and the Aurors to show up at the ministry. The elf and the goblin both kind of run to the fireplaces and disappear. And I think we can start talking a little bit about the movie here. I was really disappointed that the fountain wasn't used more. Yeah. And it actually wasn't used at all. It just gets destroyed a bit as part of the the battle between Dumbledore and Voldemort. And I just think the way that all these different 
pieces of the fountain were used throughout the battle. Yeah. Would have been really cool to see on screen. Yeah, you're right. And it reminds you of Deathly Hallows Part 2 because McGonagall says, do your duty to the school, just like she does in the book. And that scene is awesome, watching those statues come to life and watching them help save Hogwarts. So, yeah, I think they should have adapted this for the movie, maybe in the TV show one day. Mm. But this goes back to the thing that Fantastic Beasts may have now retconned, that Dumbledore was a transfiguration teacher prior to McGonagall being the transfiguration teacher, prior to Dumbledore's becoming the headmaster. And this is the biggest uh, use of transfiguration up until the thing that you just mentioned with the school statues. But this is just like the chess pieces too. These inanimate objects are all of a sudden given life and some form of sentience. And Dumbledore creating this whole thing to help his cause is amazing. He literally just built himself an army. Yeah. Like, so his mm-hmm. skills are really uh, un- unparalleled. Mm-hmm. Of course, Dumbledore sends the elf to go and get help. Like, the elf couldn't have <laughs> yeah. been like a warrior here. You know, it had to be a, a typical house elf in this situation. Well, he's still a little short. Your average spell goes right over his head. Oh, I see. Yeah. I thought I this was there's... all really interesting considering what we talked about a couple chapters ago with the centaurs feeling, you know, really resentful at the idea of wizards trying to use them to do their bidding. And this this whole sequence, I think, is emblematic of not not necessarily Dumbledore feeling this way, but the way the wizarding community uses other magical creatures with mm-hmm. sentience in order to do their bidding. Yeah, they totally. Can. I can agree more, Laura. I, I think there's a whole lot of symbolism just in what you said, but all like the elf running off to get help. It sounds funny, but that's what Dobby does throughout Mm-hmm. Pretty much the entirety of the series, right? Creature does it too, to some extent. The goblin yeah, is helpful in Deathly Hallows, right? To some extent, and and great point about the centaur. And and I just think like the just the symbolism though of the loss, though, right? All the different statues mm. get bits of them blown apart. Some of them get shattered completely. And I just think like the fact though that they're all stepping in to defend against Voldemort and what he represents is part of a larger theme. Indeed. So as it relates to the actual battle, I mean, I, I think it's cool, I, you know, seeing it on screen. I actually watched it again this morning because I know I was a little bit harsh on it in the last episode, <laughs> but it it is really awesome to watch these two wizards battle against each other, all the different spells and curses that are flying around, all the defensive magic that Dumbledore is able to come up with. Yeah. And uh, isn't you know, the scene, he, doesn't the scene have no music in the background? It's just silent and you're just hearing uh, the sound yeah. effects. Yep. I really like that. It really brings the battle to life and makes it very raw. Yeah. The the snake that Dumbledore, or sorry, that Voldemort is able to conjure up, the fact that Dumbledore is able to like encapsulate Voldemort in the water from the yeah the uh, the fountain which happens in the it, book. It, I mean, he puts him in a bubble in the book. Yeah, but it's also because Voldemort is standing in the middle of the fountain and not mm-hmm. like just random. Like, I mean, it, it's cool effect in the movie. Like, they're able to sw- get the water out of the fountain, wrap it around. Yeah, it's fine. I'm good with it. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of other cool stuff though too, like. 
Voldemort fires a number of killing curses that Dumbledore is able to dodge. Like in one moment, he just completely vanishes. <laughs> in, in, at the very end, Fox comes in and swallows the killing curse. Which, again, would have been cool to have in the movie, but... Yeah. Poor Fox. Dying so many times. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just picturing what happens when Fox swallows the killing curse. Like, I think he would squawk like a chicken or something. <laughs> like, like a rooster. <laughs> Somebody give us the squawk cut. Like, when Fox does this, edit in that sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh... The only thing I would say, though, about the movie and in rewatching it was that, like, when Michael Gambon is trying to, like, control Voldemort within that orb, it's just, like, his hand motions that look just so weird. And then he's also, he keeps looking back to see where Harry is. And, like, there's one moment where he literally throws him with magic back onto the ground. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, that that scene, that sequence just was just very odd for me. Sure. This all kind of wraps up Dumbledore versus Voldemort with Voldemort's possession of Harry. And he's somehow able to like get inside of his mind to the point where Harry's scar is burning. And the one thing, and Harry is literally begging for death, by the way, in, in this moment, he just wants it to be over so that he can be with Sirius to tie it back to the beginning of the chapter. And it's that moment, it's that thought of Sirius, that love that he has for him that makes Voldemort recoil and and get away. Yeah. I'm so surprised by how few lines of dialogue are exchanged between Voldemort and Harry. There's really only two lines. He says, so you smashed my prophecy. And then he says, I have nothing more to say to you, Potter. You have irked me too often for too long and he casts the killing curse then he tries to possess him entirely and i know we get a little bit more explanation as far as what's going on in the next chapter dumbledore kind of explains what voldemort was trying to do but i love how it's written this progression of i should die i am dead this is the worst i've ever felt life is not worth living i can be with serious but it's his his heart like surges and this is what literally repulses it just expels Voldemort from him. It's really well done. Mm-hmm. It's just really well shown that it's Harry's capacity for love and affection that kicks Voldemort out. And in the next chapter, we get the suitable like um, criticism of, oh, it's love, <laughs> big deal. <laughs> but we do see kind of from Harry's perspective, how it is this surge of emotion and how Voldemort just can't keep a hold on him. Mm-hmm. The one uh, one thing I was thinking about, though, as, as this whole battle was taking place, and and really, once Fudge shows up and and Dumbledore starts to talk to him and the other Aurors about the Death Eaters that are down in the Death Chamber, we finally get a name for where the Veil is housed. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious, how is Dumbledore's magic working both down there? Right, he says that he's tied up all these Death Eaters, basically like cattle. And they're they're not they're unable to disapparate out of the ministry, and yet he's full on fighting Voldemort up in the atrium. Yeah, but yeah, well, but also think about when like they Petrificus Totalist Neville, like he didn't suddenly unfreeze when they walked away. They applied the magic; it sticks. All right, I'll buy it. <laughs> Just be really impressed by Dumbledore's work. Don't question it. I mean, who had money on Death Chamber for the title of the the room? (laughs) Yeah, now they tell us it's the Death Chamber. Why wasn't there a sign out front? Warning, Death Chamber. Do not enter. 
I love how Harry just asks for the exit and gets it in the spinning room. Like, was there this uh, magic all along that it was just voice activated when you get in there? You got to be really them. angry. And you got to say, I want to get out of here. <laughs> Let me That's out. what it is. They could have said that. Like, I want to get to the prophecy room. And then it would have just spun. Nobody thought to try, hey, Siri, or okay, Google. Right. Well, now you just set off a lot of devices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I'm thinking about like when you use flu powder, you announce your destination. Right. So I wanted to wrap up the, the chapter talking about fudge and the ministry itself. And in my mind, fudge, he just has the typical politician's mindset because the first thing that he talks about when he gets to the ministry is the fact that the fountain is in shambles. Like that's, <laughs> that just shows you who he is and, and really where his head is at. We don't but, have money in the budget to fix this. Mm-hmm. There's money in the fountain. Oh, true. Yeah. And like he's being really rude to Dumbledore. He just <laughs> saw Voldemort is back. And all Fudge can think about is how he can punish Dumbledore next. Right. Well, yeah, and, he's he's pissed at Dumbledore for being right. Yeah, but this is such a shocking moment. You would think that in this moment, he would be able to put that aside and be like, okay, it's time to get real about Voldemort. And it's, it's time to have Dumbledore on my side. I'm just, it's very lucky that they saw Voldemort at all, um, given like the, the speedy departure that Voldemort has after failing to possess Harry. Mm-hmm. I'm just so glad that this is like a tipping point for that. But yeah, Fudge is Fudge is the slow realization that Dumbledore is there. He has a slow realization that Harry's there. And it's really just an onset of his old prejudices that, you know, because he spent all year thinking Dumbledore's trying to usurp me. He spent all year or more thinking Harry's a huge liar. Um, they're in team you know, cahoots together. So I, I don't I'm not surprised that it takes Harry, uh, Fudge a little bit of time to be sort of deprogrammed and he really doesn't completely get there. Dumbledore is having to call the shots and say, you will do this and this and this. You're going to send your R's down, you know, downstairs. You're going to then I'll give you 30 minutes of my time, but I'm too important. And after that, I'm going back to the school. (laughs) Oh yeah. Where you've reinstated me and fired Dolores Umbridge. (laughs) Yeah. He definitely asserts control and, uh, it's just, it's good to see that finally Fudge has gotten his comeuppance. Unfortunately, it's at the expense of the entire wizarding world and mm-hmm. what's about to happen. But one of the things that I just wanted to touch on before we wrap up, though, is the symbolism of all of this. And Laura, would love to get your thoughts. Because Fudge is walking into a ministry that has now been completely destroyed physically, right? Like the atrium has been just abolished. Everything is shattered. Everything is destroyed. And and I thought that just spoke to the fact that Fudge is now destroyed. He is now finished. Yeah. Hmm. Well, and also the fact that it would be entirely possible for most of the wizarding world not to know this ever got destroyed in this way because it's all underground, it's not something that's immediately accessible to most people. So, you know, just like politics, it can be in shambles, but it's still hidden. That's a great point. Mm. I don't have anything to add because Mike only asked for Laura's 
Thoughts? <laughs> no, Andrew, I want your Andrew, opinion. No, you're no, not allowed no. to think unless Micah tells you to. It was spot on. I have nothing to add for that reason. <laughs> I do think the movie did a great job at showing the possession, though. We talked yeah. about Dumbledore and Voldemort, but the, the fact that in the movie here, he's like, you don't have friends and I pity you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just kind of like Harry really gains the upper hand pretty quick. And it, it just does give a little bit more agency to Harry in the moment when he's being completely helplessly possessed. And I love the way it's shot with Voldemort in like a black room, um, <laughs> you know, and then Harry in a black room. It's it's really good stuff. Yeah, it's emotional. Creepy. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Fudge's line, he's back, is classic. <laughs> and I think, you know, Fudge says a lot more in the book, but I think that's all they needed for the movie. It says it all. Yeah. Fudge was shocked. Right. Now, Harry is heading back to Hogwarts via Portkey. And uh, it's actually the head, I think, of the wizard statue, which played a major role in, in this battle. Also symbolic. Uh, it lost its. It lost its head uh, when he was fighting with Bellatrix, but then uh, it took the killing curse flat in the chest also when uh, Voldemort fired that first spell. And yeah, definitely some symbolism there. It, it saved him, and now it's also taking him back to safety at Hogwarts. So apparently you can't apparate in or out of Hogwarts, but you can port key into Hogwarts. Well, Dumbledore is... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, all right. He was in control of that little creation there. So I just he, love he can do Fudge. things nobody can. That's right. Because he does it in front of Fudge and Fudge is like, you can't just create an unsanctioned port key in front of me. There's paperwork. <laughs> There's you got. And Dumbledore is like, look, dude, you got 30 minutes. And now Dumbledore is going to explain everything. Don't right. worry, Harry. Mm. Now I'm going to reveal all. And it only took 36 <laughs> chapters. Yeah, we can discuss this more next week. But when Dumbledore says, you know, sit down, I want to tell you everything. I think they released that line as a teaser before the book was, yep, was released. And yep. that mm -hmm. was so exciting. So exciting. God, when I was like 14 or 15, that was like, I was looking forward to that so much. Yeah, yeah. I remember they had it up on posters. Yeah. Advertising the book. That's mm -hmm. right. But first, here's 800 pages to slog through. <laughs> yeah. Not slog it's, through. Uh, I love this eh, book. Well, Every chapter, yeah, almost. We differ yeah, <laughs> on our opinions. You and Laura also, slog through it. <laughs> I'm trying to remember, somebody wrote in, it might have been in an email that we can find for next week, that were really disappointed the fact that Harry didn't show up in the movie and that scene the way that he does in the book, because he... He trashes Dumbledore's office like no other. <laughs> and that doesn't happen at all in the movie, right? Yeah, that would have been very satisfying. Yeah, I guess they had to save those props for uh, the next three <laughs> films. Well, they knew Harry was going to be angry in the next three films. So they were like, we can't have him be angry here. It'd be too repetitive. Yeah, yeah. Dumbledore will just Reparo those anyway, and I wouldn't want to sacrifice the chance to not get to see the Reparo scene that Slughorn and Dumbledore do in the next movie, because that's awesome. <laughs> so if they can only show one scene of trashed stuff getting fixed, I'd They're rather- very be, limited. Yeah. Very limited budget. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that wraps up chapter 36. 
Well, before we move on to MVP of the week and rename the chapter, I wanted to share a quick word about one of our sponsors, which is the MVP of the bra industry. (laughs) Third Love. Third Love does bras differently, and they believe everyone deserves to feel comfortable and confident every day. Third Love's bras are designed to fit you, not the other way around. They have over 80 bra sizes, but know that the only size that matters is your true fit. Start out by taking their super simple Fit Finder quiz, which takes less than 60 seconds to complete, and Third Love will help determine your breast size and shape to find the styles that best fit your body. I've been wearing Third Love's bras for almost a couple of years at this point, and I swear by the fit. They're also super comfortable, and mine have held up really nicely. And Third Love stands behind their products. Every customer has 60 days to put it to the test. If you don't love it, return it, and Third Love will wash it and donate it to someone in need. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash mugglecast to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash mugglecast for 15% off today. We will skip over the Umbridge suck count because, once again, she is not in this chapter and we don't want to give her points just for existing. (laughs) So the Umbridge suck count still stands at 114. And now it's time for MVP of the week. I'm going to give it to every statue that sprang to life at Dumbledore's commands. Good work, y'all. I'm going to give it to Dumbledore for bringing those statues to life and really just having a level of control over everything that we've never seen anyone do before or after. I'm going to give it to Fox for always coming to Dumbledore's aid. I'm going to give it to Lupin for keeping Harry away from the damn veil. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now let's rename the chapter. Order of the Phoenix, chapter 36. Duel of the Fates. Nice. Dun, dun, dun. You can hear that music. I'm not even a Star Wars nerd, but I know that song title. It's a good one. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 36, Fight and Fountain. Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 36, He's Back. <laughs> Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 36, How to Talk Yourself Out of a Job by Cornelius Fudge. <laughs> <laughs> Available now. At bookstores everywhere. If you have any feedback about today's discussion, send it on in mugglecast at gmail.com or use the contact form on mugglecast.com. You can also record a voice memo and send that to mugglecast at gmail.com. Or you can call us 1920-3Muggle. That's 1920-368-4453. It's time for Quizich. Last week's question. Who tells Fudge that you know who is back? The correct answer is a ponytailed man by the name of Williamson. Correct answers were submitted to us over on Twitter by Hermione's Unicorn, Peggy, <laughs> Sup Sarah, Sarah Weensy, Matthew McKay, Ferex, Bort Voldemort, Caleb McReynolds, Robbie Stillman, Jason King, and Ferex, if I didn't already say that. When you said that last week, though, Eric, I thought of Yaxley. But it wasn't correct, so it was not right. Right? Yeah. There's a ponytailed man. He might be the sort of crossover mashup that we've always wanted between Williamson from the books and 
Yaxley from the books. Yes, we were always clamoring for that crossover. I mean, more ponytailed men. Can we just say that in general? <laughs> Lucius Malfoy pulls it off. Eric, that could be your next cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, several people do Lucius better than I do. I'll tell you that. But well, never know. Won't knock until I try it. <laughs> so next week's ah. question. What does Phineas Nigellus call Sirius when Dumbledore tells him he is dead? Submit your correct answer to us over on Twitter using hashtag Quizich and at ReplyMuggleCast in your tweet. Over on our Patreon last week, we had a new installment of Bonus MuggleCast. Laura, what did we talk about? You gave us kind of a history lesson, didn't you? Yeah, so we talked about the Death Eaters' hypocrisy in acknowledging Voldemort's lineage And we made some comparisons to other historical figures who also had these sorts of hypocrisies. Yeah. Yeah, it was was a really good discussion. And we played a game at the end of it. It was really cool. And we are about to record another new bonus MuggleCast installment in which we will discuss a new article from Entertainment Weekly in which they allege that Fantastic Beasts is now the world's most problematic movie franchise. I actually disagree with this. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it. And I saw some conversations on Twitter that I also disagreed with about the box office potential for Fantastic Beasts 3. So we'll talk about all of that in this installment of Bonus MuggleCast. It will be available on patreon.com slash MuggleCast. And when you pledge, you get a custom RSS feed that you can pop into most podcasting apps so you can listen to the bonus content in addition to ad free MuggleCast. So visit patreon.com slash MuggleCast for more information. We really appreciate everybody's support. You will also get a personalized video thank you message from one of the four MuggleCasters and lots of other bonus content. So thank you in advance for pledging and thanks to everybody who supports the show. You are the reason why we are a weekly podcast. Also, we would love if you followed us on social media. We are MuggleCast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We post Throwback Thursdays with old clips from the show. We post previews of each new episode. We post fun Harry Potter memes that we find and some other things as well. So again, MuggleCast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks, everybody, for listening to today's episode. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.